You'll notice in Philippians chapter 1, uh, what I have here, verse 27, Brian was sure to point out last week, that you have the theme, right? The major point of Philippians. Living your life in a manner that, as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel. Right? So we adorn the gospel with our lives, and it runs to the end, and you get to chapter 2, is where we're going to be tonight. And uh, chapter 2 is filled with theology. Packed into chapter 2, you're going to find and see when I read it, you're going to see things you've heard before quite a bit. There are going to be some verses in chapter 2 that resonate with you. You've read them before. You maybe even have memorized them. In fact, if you drop down in verse, from verse 6 to about verse 11, it's, it should be bracketed if you have a Bible. If not, you, you see it in, in, in uh, the handout. There you have a hymn. How many people like to sing hymns here? Like to sing hymns. Take a look, John. Just, that's for you. All right. <laughs> so you have the, one of the very first Christian hymns right there. In the book of Philippians. And the good thing about that hymn from verse 6 to verse 11, and we'll get to it, is that it is is packed full of doctrinal things. I mean, right, you have these, um, this solid theology about Jesus. Which I think speaks to what we should do as Christians, and what I should do as a a pastor, what teachers should do when it comes time to teach the Bible is to actually give good, solid theology and then trust that the Lord is going to apply. Apply the scripture to people's hearts. One of the things you learn in a preaching class is that you're supposed to do um, exposition, illustration, application. So what I'm supposed to do when I preach is Talk about the Bible, show you what the Bible says, and then, because you can't understand that, give you an illustration. So I'll come up with some cool illustration, and then, after illustrating, you go, oh yeah, okay, I see what that means. And then I'm supposed to do application. So I want you to think for a moment, if you were me, standing in front of our congregation with the the different people we have. Right here at Main Campus, show up. So think about the scope of people we have. From different backgrounds, from different lifestyles, from different parts of the world. How could I actually make good application to each person? Truth is that I can't. So what we do then is we spend time talking about the Bible and then trust that the Holy Spirit will make the application to people's hearts that they need to hear. Somebody got a phone going off? I hear it. It's a piano playing. Okay, so this is what we're going to do tonight. We're going to go to chapter 2 and just spend most of our time in chapter 2. In all of our time in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Paul's going to lift up three people. He'll lift up supremely Jesus Christ in verses 6 through 11. After that, he'll lift up his layman, a guy named Epaphroditus. Uh, You'll find that near the end of chapter 2. And he lifts up his friend, uh, Timothy. So before we get to that, let's talk about what he talks about when it comes to unity. Let's go to chapter... uh, By the way, I don't have an outline tonight. Uh, We're just going to go through the Bible. Just talk about what the Bible says. 
point out some things. Hopefully, it'll be helpful. Chapter 2. So, if there is, look at the fourfold call for unity. Right here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. Fourfold call for unity. So, notice it. If there is any encouragement in Christ, that's one. Any comfort from love, that's two. Any participation in the Spirit, that's three. If there's any affection and sympathy, that's four. Fourfold call. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Unity. Church unity. Christian unity. Now look around you tonight. Look at the room. Just go ahead and look around. Left and right. Look at people. I don't make you do much. I'm not asking you to touch anybody. Just look around and see them. You don't have to touch them. Just look. And so you see how many different people are here and different kinds of people are here. You and I don't have the ability to provide unity to this group of people. I can't do that. But as Christians, we are called to be unified under the lordship of Jesus, right? And you'll notice in, in verses 1 and 2, uh, Paul gives us a fourfold call for it. Notice how he... Um, Let's see if we can just look at some words. See if the, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. Paraclesis, encouragement. Paraclete. Know what the paraclete is? You heard that Greek word? Paraclete is the Holy Spirit, encourager, uh, the one that comes alongside. If there's any of that. So if you are a Christian and you have any of that kind of sense in your life, or if there's any comfort from love, or any participation, that's the word koinonia, any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy. You see those two words, affection and sympathy? Those are visceral words. It's the, uh, the Greek word is splagna. It's the, it's the word that means guts. It's, it's, you know how you feel things sometimes? Someone close to you dies and you feel it. You've, you've, you've done something to someone, you've seen their reaction, and it's hurt them, and you feel that guilt, the, the sense that comes, that when Jesus went to Bethany, remember when Lazarus died and Mary and Martha came to meet him, Martha comes out and says, hey, if you had been here, you could have raised him from the dead. Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus. All of the Jews, Lazarus' friends are crying, Martha's crying, Mary's crying, and, and you go and read that story and Jesus looks around and and he hurts. This, this is the word used there, that he felt it. And that's where you get the, the shortest stuff. You're going to memorize a verse. The verse to memorize is Jesus wept, right? Yeah. That's where he, I mean, that's where he, this is the same word. So Paul is saying, if there's any of this going on in your life, then what, what that is to be directed toward is absolute unity. Do you see it? it, it look at the words in, in verse 2. You see the sense of unity, Right? Complete my joy by being same mind, same love, in full accord, in one mind. And then notice the negatives. Notice how if we're going to be unified, what does it take? It takes being others focused. If we're going to have a unified church, if we're going to have Christians that hold together, whether it's a small group or a group this size or an entire congregation, we have to be others focused. You see that in verse 3? That is looking at other people. You see it? Let me read it to you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, notice what we're supposed to do. Count other people more significant 
than you. Other people's desires ahead of your desires. Other people's needs ahead of your needs. Now that sounds easy to, to think about. It's really hard to do. I mean, if you've ever been married, it's really hard to do, right? You take that and multiply it by 3,000, it's hard to do. But one of the calls that we have is to do something that seems impossible. Put other people's desires ahead of your desires. See, what happens when you come to Christ and you're changed, when you're converted, and now you have crucified the flesh, when you've looked to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, when you look to Jesus, now you are a different person. You're not, are, you're not in this world for yourself. You, according to what Paul is saying here, we are called to put other people. This morning I did a devotion for our staff. Every uh, Wednesday morning we pray together before uh, really get the day started. And I just do it, typically, I just out of my reading. So in the, in the mornings, um, when I have my time with the Lord, whatever I'm reading that day, I just bring to staff meeting. Today I was reading in the book of John, and um, it's, it's at the end, after he's raised Lazarus from the dead, they're trying to kill Lazarus, chapter 13 in John. Uh, Jesus now has the, all of the apostles and they're getting ready to have the Passover. And you remember he, he took his outer garment off and he put on a towel. And remember what he did? Okay, so he goes around uh, washing everybody's feet. But what John is quick to tell us is that don't forget there's somebody sitting in that group. It's Judas. And, and John tells us that Satan had already entered into Judas before Jesus washed his feet, and Jesus goes around the, goes around the circle, and you know, Peter says, I'm not, you're not washing my feet, and Jesus says, if, you're not, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part, and Peter says, well, yeah, look, bathe me. He'd have been a good Baptist. Put me all the way under. I want the whole thing, and Jesus says, well, no, you're already clean. Uh, those that are clean just need to have their feet washed. And Jesus goes around to all of the apostles and washes Judas' feet. And then he got done and he said, Do you, you know what I've done for you? What I've done for you is give you an example. I've done this by way of an example so that you understand that you serve people. Truth of the matter is, most of us don't have any problem serving people that we actually love. We might even take another step. We don't have any problem serving Christian people because in some way you might could rationalize they actually kind of deserve our service. We're glad to do that. Even if they get on our nerves, we know that they're, they're Christians and so we want to serve in some capacity. But the example is not just that he served his followers, he served a, a betrayer. The example is that we not only are able to put people ahead of us that we actually respect and love, that's hard enough. The example is we do that for people that, we, that do not deserve it, that actually think poorly of us. And so the picture here is a fourfold call for unity, verses 1 and 2. And then you get down to verse 4. Verse 4 is pressing us to be others-focused. Others-focused. Now, once you get through that, we're going to get down to verse... We're getting close to the hymn. The hymn is from verse 6 to verse 11. is the first Christian hymn that we know of. 
Before I call your attention to that, I want you to flip um, into chapter 2 a little further. Let's talk about two men before we talk about Jesus. Let's talk, uh, you'll find it on the next page. It starts probably up there with Timothy and Epaphroditus. Do you see that? Let's talk about those two because in chapter 2, Paul calls our attention to three men. Jesus supremely, right? He also talks about Timothy and he talks about Epaphroditus. So Jesus as Lord, Timothy as a pastor, Epaphroditus as a layperson. So Jesus, we'll get to him at the end and, and look at the hymn about Jesus. But it's good for us to examine um, a layperson. So that's, that's just a regular church member. Somebody just comes to church, involved in church and serving the Lord and working a normal job. That's Epaphroditus. And then Timothy, who will become a pastor. Okay. Let's look at, let's look at Timothy first. You'll find it in verse 19. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Timothy, we, we, there's a book named Timothy. Timothy was raised by a mother that was a believer a father that was not a believer. He was raised in a home that um, is not an ideal home, but his mother worked hard to make sure that, that he heard the gospel, and evidently he had heard the gospel, believed, and um, so he, he came up in that home. You, it may have even been feeling like a single-parent home, and Paul noticed something about Timothy on his trips in Acts, picked Timothy up and trained him, and Timothy becomes a son to him. In fact, you can see it. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. So Timothy was going to be from Rome. He was going to be sent over to Philippi and then he would find out what's going on there and then come back to Rome and, and tell Paul all that's happening there. Okay, that, that was the intent. But notice his description of Timothy. Verse 20, I have no one like him. All of the hundreds of people that Paul comes into contact with. At the end of Romans chapter 16, he lists about 30 people that he just mentions. Say, tell them I said hello, tell them I said hello. And of all the people that he's ever come into contact with, including Peter and the apostles he met, the people of the first church there in Jerusalem, going into Antioch, all of his trips around the world. And this is what he says about Timothy. I wonder if Timothy knew he said this. Maybe he did, maybe he carried the letter. I have no one like him. Look how, look how else he describes Timothy. Who will be genuine, genuinely concerned for your welfare. So Paul is writing a church and he's talking about Timothy and he says that Timothy is a young pastor. He has a real love for the church. That he genuinely wants to give his life to the church. I don't know who he's talking about here in verse 21. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. I don't know if he has some disgruntled church members I think probably he's talking about the culture in the, the city of Philippi and the people that live there. Right? <clears throat> but you know, verse 22, you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So as a son with a father, he has subordinated himself to Paul. And also, he gave him gospel service. He would speak the gospel to Paul. He was able to encourage Paul with the gospel. One of the great things you can do as a Christian to another Christian is to actually speak the gospel into somebody's life. 
If you're a Christian and you have a brother or sister that's struggling, one of the great things you can do is talk about the value of Jesus over against that which you're facing. So how does the gospel speak into pain? You can say it like this. Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners. God raised him from the dead. And if you believe in that, you'll be saved. And part of that salvation is the wounds of Jesus are there to remind us of his deep care for us. And in times of peril and hurt, we can go to Jesus and thank God that the wounds of Jesus, that Jesus has suffered on our behalf, that the suffering we go through, and we're going to talk about that. You probably talked about it last week, that suffering is, is an actual gift that did, did, did did Brian talk about that last week? That God has given us grace and suffering. It's right there in verse 28 of chapter 1. And, and, and here, Paul is saying he's able to minister the gospel. The gospel to me. He served me with the gospel. That's Timothy. But who I'm most, um, who I'm most impressed with is Epaphroditus. You see him in verse 25? Verse 25 and verse 26, Epaphroditus, we, don't, we would not know who, I couldn't pick him out of a room full of girls. I don't, we don't know who he is, right? If he walked in, who, who, Epaph- nobody would know his name if Paul had not written it down for us. He's just a guy in the church. Just a, not an apostle, not a super disciple, just a guy. But notice the five descriptors of Epaphroditus. I'll just show them to you in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. See if you see it myself. Here come the five. Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Five of them. Five things that Epaphroditus is. I'll go through them quickly. Everything all right? Okay. All right. He, the reason he uh, has a son he has to take care of, and has, he has to answer the phone like that. He's not just doing that. To... Right. He, he's got to answer the phone. So we have an agreement. You can answer. Nobody else? Answer. You can answer. <laughs> all right. Look at the five of them right here in verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, my brother. So... Loves Jesus, saved, walks with you, right? One of the great things you can have in the church is Christian friendship. Somebody that's going to walk beside you. Especially, especially people that are, if, if you're not married, one of the great benefits of the church is establishing Christian brotherhood or sisterhood. It is a beautiful thing to have someone that will walk with you. And that's what the church is for. And, and if you come in and you're, you don't have a family in the church, and if you walk in single, you have to press yourself into it because you need that. God gathers us together for a reason, to, to share our burdens with one another. And this is what Paul's talking about, Epaphroditus, that he's my brother, that, that I've had a hard time. And he's, Paul's in prison now in Rome, right? He's going to die there in Rome. And Epaphroditus, who's just this regular guy, He's ministering to Paul. He's a brother. One of the beauties of the church, of genuine fellowship, is that we actually take care of one another. So let me just encourage you 
that uh, to, to do a better job, to have better eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to, for people that actually need to be spoken into. You need the accountability and someone needs the affection. God has given me here at Hickory Grove, beyond the great brothers and sisters in Christ that serve the church here, uh, the pastors that I serve with. 17, 17 pastors. We're on a group text that I get a text every single day from every single pastor. And I send one to every single pastor every single day of the, of the things that I've read in the Bible and what's going on in my devotional life. Our accountability is to each other, all of us together, every day. Now, it makes for a really long group text. But I know that i got guys walking with me, right? And so Paul says, Epaphroditus is my brother. He's also a fellow worker. Not just affection. We're doing something together. That the church is going somewhere, and I'm, I'm a part of that. He's a fellow worker. Uh, there's another word here. He's a fellow soldier. Fellow soldier. Look at the imagery that Paul is using. Back in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, Paul uses some athletic imagery. He uses soldier imagery. Remember that uh, at the end of chapter 1 that we are now, we're standing side by side. Remember that? That's soldier imagery. Philippi is a part of the Roman Empire. Uh, The Roman Empire, the way it was built after Julius Caesar and all of the Caesars. I'm reading a book right now called... uh, Ten Caesars. Started with Julius Caesar and ends up with Constantine who uh, legalized Christianity. And, and the way the Roman Empire was built was through the legion. The common Roman soldier and the way they fought was with something called a phalanx. They locked their shields together with their spears sticking out and would take small steps going forward. And that's sort of the imagery that Paul is saying that that Epaphroditus is he's just an infantryman. He's just another guy in the line of moving the church forward. He's a fellow soldier. And he says to the church uh, that Epaphroditus is also your messenger. A messenger. He's going to take the word that Paul speaks and bring it to the church and take the situation of the church and bring it to Paul. And the word that Paul was speaking would be what we have in the Bible. That he is bringing the actual word of God. And then the fifth thing that he is, he is a minister to needs. Epaphroditus is a lay person and he's meeting people's needs. Let me just, um, let me just pause here and say, you need to have a ministry that you're doing. We've got, we got some people sitting here that know the Bible, love Jesus, love to serve and like to learn, we need to take that and actually be doing something with it. I've challenged our uh, missions pastor, Casey Norkett. We do a lot of things with uh, mission trips to reach the communities when we're planning churches. We're doing that in Boston, doing it in Washington, doing it in San Diego. That's a mission trip. I want to go go on to San Diego. Uh, but we're doing a lot of those planning churches. And one of the ways we plant churches is we go around the neighborhood. We canvass the neighborhood around the church, meeting the community, inviting them to church. One of the things I want to do here is start treating our church like a church plant and find ways that we can reach the community around our church. Because we've got, a, a, we've got the message, right, that we're supposed to be doing, ministering to needs, doing that with, with one another. Okay, so Paul, 
and Epaphroditus. Those are two people to look at. Let me call your attention away from those two guys. And I want to show you a couple of things in chapter 2. I'm going backwards. I'm going back up the page. So let me show you something in verse 12. Verse 12 has to do, I'm, I'm saving the hymn of Jesus to the last. I want to save it because it's a great, to me it's a great way to end, right? Okay, let me show you some things about sanctification in verse 12. You see verse 12? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Anybody ever heard that verse before? Work out your own salvation. So you, you got that. You probably heard it before. But make sure you add to it the next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's the definition for sanctification. Verse 12 and 13. Right? God is working in us. And if God is working in us, then we then are working out our salvation. And if we've experienced salvation, then it's going to show up in a lifestyle. Sanctification is not just you doing things, living a better life, and hoping that pleases God. Sanctification is, is a transformation of grace that's happened in your heart, and then from that transformation, you living out as a changed person. It's not just believing in Jesus. Certainly, we, that, that begins the process you turn from your sin by repentance and then believe in what Christ has done on the cross. That's the change. And then once the change happens, that salvation is being worked out in a hundred different ways every single day. So you're working out because God is working in. Right? Now, I feel like I was doing all of that as just, just so I can press it aside for a moment. And look at Jesus in verse 6. Verse 6 starts the example. To get the context, let me back up and show you verse 5. <clears throat> verse 5, have, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we've looked at Epaphroditus, the layman, looked at Timothy, the pastor, now I'm having you look at Jesus for the, la for the last, that clock says 7.05, Brian got done at 7.11. I'm going to take it at least to 7.12, so the last seven minutes or so. You ready? Let's go. Verse 6, who though he was in the form of God. If you're going to write down something about Jesus, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus, the Son, is equal with God the Father. We are Trinitarian people. We believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect harmony from before the uh, dawn of time, gives us a picture of what it means to, to have a church, to be together. The Trinity is the picture of perfect fellowship. And God the Son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, from the dawn of time and before that, perfectly God. Equal to God in verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he's 
perfectly God, not created, God. You find humility here. He's letting go of something in verse 6. This is, remember, this is a theological, this is a, this is a teaching moment for the church at Philippi. Teach people what to believe about Jesus. Because heresy crept in by the second century. Arians didn't believe that Jesus was actually divine. And so Paul, here in the first, first century, is teaching. He's fully God, right? Equal, but humble. There's the verse in verse 7. Notice the next word, I would just say emptied. He emptied himself. It's the Greek word kenosis. There's been a whole lot of stuff, a whole lot of uh, books written about that word kenosis. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Does that mean he no longer was God? That is not what it means. In fact, he, he, he explains what it means in verse 7. He emptied himself. How did he empty himself, Paul? By taking the form of a servant. You see that word servant? It's the Greek word doulos. It's, it's the word slave, bond slave. He, although was God, he did something in order to save us. Became a slave. That's the word. Slave. It's uh, described even further. Emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, servant. Well, what does that mean? Well, look at it a little further. In verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. Right there is Christmas, verse 7, being born. That's the incarnation. Part of our Christian doctrine is we believe that Jesus, the Son of God, fully God, was immaculately conceived, right? A virgin Mary, born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. That Mary gave birth to Jesus without the help of a man. Fully God, born of a woman. That's important for us. The body of Jesus is important for us because we need him to have been a man to be able to save us. Okay, so you got that in verse 8. The incarnation. Not only that, uh, notice he, he emptied himself, took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. So we talked about that. He's a human, so fully God now and fully man. So what you've seen from verse 6 and 7 and 8 is fully God, fully man. Human form. And he humbled himself. You see that word humbled himself? How did he humble himself? Well, Jesus not only humbled himself by becoming a man, he humbled himself by being tempted in, in every way as we are tempted. Remember before his ministry started? Before his ministry started, went out into the wilderness, and there Satan tempted him in every way. And it was such, it was such a temptation that even the angels came and ministered to him, humbled himself. But, but not only that, notice also in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. You see that phrase, obedient? I've used the, um, the, I've used the phrase, earned righteousness of Jesus before. I need to, I, I've used it and then I would get emails. Jesus didn't earn righteousness. He was, right, he was already righteous. He didn't have to earn it. So I had, a, I had to answer a bunch. I didn't communicate it well. Let me see if I can communicate it well. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, when he came and lived on earth, he was already completely righteous. Inherent righteousness. He didn't need to get righteousness from anywhere. He is righteous. As a man, 
He lived his life fulfilling all of God's laws and earned a man's righteousness. That's an important part of our salvation. He earned righteousness so that when he dies on the cross and he takes the sin, your sin, he gives you not his inherent righteousness, but the actual earned righteousness. He, he didn't just die in our place, he also lived in our place. So, so his obedience, this part is very important to salvation. If we run too fast by the cross, we don't pick up the necessary pieces that, that, that save us. Right? It didn't just pay for our sins, he lived for our righteousness. He earned it. Okay, so uh, did I make that clear enough? Anybody going to send me an email? No. Okay. Send it to Brian. Brian saying send it to Mike. You send it. To, he'll be better at answering it than I will anyway. All right. So I got that one. Let's look again at verse 8. He, he, he experienced and conquered death, verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. There's righteousness to the point of death. Now pause there. Death. It's important that Jesus, being fully God, fully man, that he actually didn't just live, that he also died. All right, part, of, part of the natural process of being alive is that we will die. We'll do lots of things to try to put it off, all, all kind of, of, of health stuff to put it off. And I, look, I think you should try to be healthy. I wish I were more healthy. I eat like an 11-year-old. <laughs> It'll catch me sometime, I'm sure. But the process is dying, and, and, and Jesus died and defeated death, right? It's important that he go through and take the sting out of death so that we're not afraid of death anymore. Death no longer uh, makes us afraid. Death then becomes, although it's a painful experience, it can become a friend that ushers us into the presence of God. So he died, right? But didn't just die. Notice verse 8. His death was on, see it, even death on a cross, a terrible thing. The, Pers the Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it, used it to torture people. When a man was nailed to a cross, it was there by way not only of torture and execution, it was humiliation because he was nailed completely without any clothing. We, we put a loincloth when we see the picture of Jesus, but it wasn't there. It wasn't there. Com completely humiliating. And, and the cross is here as a punitive. The cross was for punishment. It's important that we think about that, that Jesus didn't just die, died on the cross. Why did he do that? He did that for punishment. This is important for Orthodox Christianity, that Jesus died on the cross, actually taking punishment from a just God. He died in the place of sinners. Not as a martyr, not as one that was, that it was ashamed that he died. He died in the place of sinners. So death on a cross, there's punishment there. Okay, so let me take you to verse 9. Now, that's verse 8, by the way, in this hymn is the nadir. You know what nadir means? The low point. If, if apex is the high point, nadir is the low. Verse 8 is the absolute lowest point, but verse 9 starts to come out. Let's see it coming out. Look at verse 9. Here comes, here comes, the, therefore, since all that's happened, therefore, here comes the resurrection and ascension. God has highly exalted him. That's the resurrection and ascension, all put into one. You go to Romans chapter 8, verse 31, uh, the golden chain of salvation, the, the, the glory of God, the resurrection and ascension. You have, you have Jesus being raised from the dead, ascending into heaven. Right? So God has exalted him. Now something happens there 
with his exaltation. There is a supremacy of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The, the, the name that beats any other name. Some say it's the name Jesus. I would say that Jesus is the name he always had. I think it, it's, it's going to be Jesus is Lord. Remember, we're going to see that in a moment. I think the name is Lord. That he, that he not only has the name Jesus of, as man, he has the name Lord as, as, as divine. Okay, so, so the supremacy of Christ, but you also see the sovereignty. We're going to see that, right? That every... Every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to fess, confess that Jesus is Lord, that he, He's in absolute control. One of the important things for us to remember as Christians that, that our God is good and is in control, that He gives us the gift, the gift of salvation, the gift of suffering, that Christ knows what you're in, He's using you for His glory. Right? So, so you have the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty, and notice the universal worship. So God is, in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. Here's the reason why. So that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see the three places? See, heaven, earth, under the earth. So that's heaven and hell and those that are existing. It is the uh, already not yet. Right, so it. It's the, the without-a-time continu- continuum. This is what happens. So I think I might have said it Sunday that this is a picture of those in heaven with great joy worshiping Jesus. This is a picture of those in hell with the gnashing of teeth having to say Jesus is Lord. And this is a picture of those on earth at, at the second coming seeing Jesus is Lord. So... So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lordship of Jesus. There was a movement back in the 70s, probably the 80s, 70s and 80s, that had to do with uh, easy believism. You guys remember the, the debate on Lordship Salvation? Anybody remember that debate? There's a debate that was going on in Christian circles about lordship. Do you have to actually repent to be saved? Right? That was a debate. And uh, which seems weird now that I've said it, but that was a debate. And one of the key phrases of how we understand Jesus as Savior is that he is Lord. And we try to use the language, well, I made Jesus my Savior, but I didn't make him Lord. And it's a false, it's a false dichotomy, right? Because Jesus actually is Lord. I mean, heaven and earth and under the earth are going to confess that. He is Lord. The question then is, do we, do we submit ourselves to his lordship? Right? Do we give ourselves to the crucified, resurrected one? Well, this, this hymn ends with this beautiful phrase that every tongue is confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And here's why. To the glory of God the Father. That, that all of this happens to God's glory. So that, so that the good things that happen to us happen to God's glory. 
the bad things to God's glory. All of that because we have submitted ourselves to the lordship of Christ. Paul, in this little short chapter, he lifts up his young pastor, Timothy, and says, he's a, he's a good one, you ought to follow him. There's nobody like him. And then he points to a great guy that goes to his church named Epaphroditus, just a really hard-working, humble man that works in the church. And Paul says, there are five, I mean, he's a fellow soldier, a fellow brother. You should be like him. But above all of those things, Paul pulls this hymn and puts it in his letter and says, there's nobody like Jesus. He is the name above every name. And you should look to him, you should be like him, you should give your life to him, and you should worship him. Chapter 2 gives us the supremacy of Jesus Christ. To join me as we pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for the goodness you've given us in Christ. We thank you that Jesus is Lord. We confess that freely and joyfully. Father, we thank you that Jesus died in our place on the cross. We thank you that you gloriously raised him from the dead. We thank you that by your own power you, you caused him to ascend into heaven and now he intercedes on our behalf. And so we come to you not on our own merits but on the merits of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we thank you. Father, I pray that you protect the men and women here, that you guide them, draw them to yourself, that you wake us up tomorrow morning and enough time to spend time with you, and bring us back here on the Lord's Day so that we might collectively as a congregation say together, Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. You're dismissed. <laughs>